I think as pilots, we like to carry it forward. It's hard when you talk to a pilot for them not to get excited about what they do. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show, and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. We're brought to you today by trainmorepilots.com, a website where you can get resources and help marketing uh, ideas for your helicopter company. So check those guys out at trainmorepilots.com. This is episode 11 of the Rotary Wing Show. It's starting to get some momentum now, and I'm having a lot of fun doing these, so I just hope that you're enjoying them as well. And I know a few of you are, as some of you have been very kind and sent me a, a few messages of encouragement, so that's really appreciated. Now, I've got organized and updated the website over at rotarywingshow.com. If you go there now, you'll find a, a PDF download with the uh, top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew as submitted by you, the, the show listeners. Uh, here's a picture of, of the cover of the books, a little blurb about each one, and a link to where you can get that on Amazon, or you can look them up on whoever is your favorite uh, book outlet. If you're listening to this way in the future, then there may be something different there to download, but uh, right at the time of recording, that's what's available over on the website, so you can grab that list of books. There is also a video of me talking about the show on the About page, so if you want to see my ugly mug, you can uh, see that there too. Now, today's guest on the show is one seriously busy lady. Diana Stanger owns a bunch of, hel- of companies, manages an airfield, is involved in angel flights, competes in several air races each year, owns and flies a fighter jet trainer, while also supporting several organizations working to raise the profile of aviation. She's also the president of the International Whirly Girls Association for Female Helicopter Pilots. See, I told you, Diana was busy. So Diana was a, a hoot to chat to in this interview, and I really hope you enjoy the interview as well. So Diana joins us from Texas. Good morning, Diana Stanger. It's quite early over there for yourself in the US. So thank you very much for taking the time out to join us on the Rotary Wing Show today. Oh, happy to do it. This is what I'd love to do in the morning is talk about my favorite organization and favorite flying. Absolutely. And so, yeah, for the listeners, so we'll be getting into and talking all about the Whirly Girls because you are the, the president there at the moment at the time of recording and definitely about your background as far as the helicopter flying uh, goes but before we launch in that because it's going to be a little bit different and we definitely will be talking about flying but let's talk about um, where you're situated at the moment uh, so you're in what's the name of the is it Calhoun County is where you are that's the name of the county yes it's a large county that's located on the gulf coast of the state of Texas so we are right on the water and um, we've got the best of both worlds we've got the the nice big wide open Texas country and we're on the water and I had a look for people who are overseas, um, you know, again, our geography of the U.S. is not brilliant, but, but basically if you looked at the, on the map at America and split it north-south straight down the middle of the uh, United States and draw a line at the bottom where it hits the Mexico uh, or the 
yeah, almost in the Mexico border, and that's pretty much where you are. Would that be a rough description? That would be very accurate. Excellent. And you're so you're living in a little bit of town, I guess. So you're living on a on a large uh, horse cattle ranch. And do you want to list off the animals you've got on on the ranch? <laughs> it, it's a rather large sized ranch for for this area of the country, but we've got a quite the menagerie of different animals. We're largely a a cattle rancher, and we we raise for replacement heifers, which we don't raise for meat. So we've got thirteen hundred head of cattle, and then we've got the exotics. We've got zebras and and camels and Latusi, and then we get into the horses. <laughs> and I know on the horses side, like this plays into the aviation side too. You must be an incredibly competitive person. So on the horses, you're, you're doing actually. Is it showing the horses, or you're riding the horses? What have you won the the awards for? Actually, uh, until aviation became such a large part of my life, I mostly what I had shown. And yes, I'm very competitive. Is the horses, and I ride them as well as well as show them. I've done every type of class there is with horses, from dressage to uh, working cows. And uh, the competition doesn't stop until I reach the top of my skill level, and then I go on and try something else because I just like to keep learning new skills. And I think that plays out on the aviation side too, as we get to the, to those bits and pieces. So, is there an airfield on the ranch? Is it big enough to actually have a strip? Actually, we do have a strip. Um, when we moved here, the first thing that I did was put in a helipad. And so we have an official helipad that was a stu- uh, approved by the FAA. And then after that, I put a grass strip in. So it's about 2,000 feet long. And that's right at the ranch, too, because as we all know, if your aircraft is close to you, it's that much easier to fly every day. And so I put it right outside my back door. And I saw a photo of the, you've got an EC-120 at the moment in the, in the barn there, it looked like. Um, it was a, a photo someone stayed with you. So, yeah, it's just a matter of rolling it out the shed and, uh, and you're off? Exactly. It's, uh, it's just that easy. Fantastic. All right. So let's, um, Diane, let's get into the helicopter side of things then. So what was your, and I love this backstory, <laughs> what was your first experience <laughs> with, uh, with helicopters? Well, I, I was never one of the, the people that watched an aircraft and said, I want to do that when I went, when I get older. Um, I, I learned flying late in life. This is my 20th year now of being a helicopter pilot. And the, the whole way that it came about was we had a home that was on an island. And the only way to get to the home was by boat. So across the water, we would go with everything that we would need from our day-to-day lives, which meant my groceries often got crushed if the weather was bad that day. And so the reason I learned to fly was basically because my eggs kept getting broken as we would take the boat to our house after shopping. And um, we had a school at the base of our company up in Connecticut that only did helicopters. And I'm not the normal pilot. I, I want something that's different. I could never be a fixed-wing pilot first. So I started off with helicopters and, and learned to fly a Robinson just because it made it easier to get to our island home. So this is an R-22 at this stage? Yes, it was an R-22, and the reason we had to buy it was because the school never had one available with my schedule, so it was just easier to buy our own helicopter and then take instruction in that. And that school, was that one of the, because you're, and we'll get into this as well, because you've got a lot of different hats on, so you're director of several different companies, but was this a a company sort of under your umbrella, or was this just another flying school that you went to? 
Oh, it's just another flying school that we went to, and it was it's actually located in New England, which is where we had a company at the time. Well, we still have the company, but it was easy to go to check on the company and take some flying lessons for summer that year. Sure, and you flew that back then from uh, Connecticut to the Bahamas, where the island was. Did you fly it all the way back? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, I can't believe that I could make that commute now. It just, I would follow the coastline all the way down the United States from New England down to Florida, and then I would take that little R-22 across to the island. And to this day, the thing that I remember most is I always knew when I was flying over water where the cargo ships were, because I knew if I had an accident, I was sure going to try and aim for one of the cargo ships. And I guess, yeah, I guess the ocean out there is pretty busy in that, in that section. It is. What was the longest? What's the longest leg on that trip, as far as over water? The longest leg was um, just about 160 nautical miles, and that would be from the coastline of Florida over to Grand Bahama, and that would in, involve the uh, Gulf Stream, the real rough water, and all the shipping lanes. I would fly over. Ah, uh, in an R22, you can have that. And in R22, it's it's hard to believe today. <laughs> awesome. All right. So you got the eggs to the island, and uh, and then it sounds like you needed a, <laughs> like to carry a few more things. Uh, so what happened after the R22? Well, after the R22, eventually um, I wanted an R44 with floats because I was worried about crossing over the water. And that didn't end up being a good deal. However, I did get an R44 with floats, and it would take that over to the island to carry a little bit more. But I'm a woman, and I love to shop, so what I eventually learned was how to fly an airplane. And so in addition to a helicopter, I would have an airplane that I could load a, a lot more food and, and goods that I would need on the island. I was going to stay right away from buying the shoes, but uh, <laughs> I guess the extra... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, so let's, let's go. So, all right, so we had R-22, R-44, uh, and then where did you go next with helicopters? Oh, the next helicopter was a Jet Ranger because I needed a jet engine. I wanted to try it after after flying the Robinsons. I was ready to to get something a little heavier, a little more stable. And so I went with a a 206B, and it was a fantastic ship. It had actually been the helicopter that they used in a movie that was made in the United States called U.S. Marshals. Had an unbelievable paint job. Just got attention wherever it went, and I loved to fly turbine engine. There's nothing like setting the power and going, and not having to worry about the governor issues and all the other things that go along with all the Robinsons. But jet engines, I decided I liked them much better. <laughs> so a, a jet ranger was was my mode of transportation for quite a few years. Fantastic. All right, and next, we'll just because what I want to do is, is get through the, a bit of your back history there, so we can talk about the uh, the Whirly Girls. So, all right, so we did the uh, Jet Ranger. Next one on the list was the uh, the one hundred nine. Yeah, as the progression continued, big. The next one was the one hundred nine. At that time, we were deciding to relocate to Texas, so I didn't need to worry about going over the water. And I was looking for a more corporate aircraft instead of an airplane. I, I got rid of the airplane and just concentrated on one helicopter that would suit both needs. The Augusta was made for us, and um, it was it was a great, great helicopter. I love landing on wheels. You never have a, a bad landing when you're landing on rubber. It just takes all the 
the set down issues out of the skids. So I just love that. I love the fact that I could take everybody in the back. I could go long distances and I would go across the country in the Augusta and it was IFR. I am a IFR certified pilot. So it, it was just the perfect ship to get me anywhere I wanted. And it was the only aircraft that we owned at the time. You know, I haven't flown a 109, but you know, they, they look like a sleek machine. They, they look very, very nice. So uh, yeah, I'd love to get my hands and, and, and give it a try. And I think, you know, I asked a couple of questions beforehand, and you said that was your favorite helicopter of all time as, as far as the ones you've flown. It is only because, well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I love the style of the Augusta. I love the fact that it had all the FADEC and the nice instruments. It was single pilot IFR, which was important at the time. And it, it doesn't matter if you're flying a, an Augusta of power you're going to get looks no matter where you are. And it was, it just garnered a lot of attention. It did everything I needed, including the speed and the cargo. So it was my favorite. But I, I missed, missed not being able to open the doors. That to me is what a basic helicopter, as a pilot, that's what I enjoyed most was being able to open the doors, fly low and do some maneuvers that the Augusta didn't do. So I actually missed the basic thrill of having doors open, flying low, and um, having people lean out of, out of my helicopter. So after the Augusta, I decided to go with a bigger airplane to get me the distance, and I went with a smaller hel- helicopter, and I have not regretted it since. And the helicopter that replaced the Augusta was the EC-120. And how do you find that one? <laughs> I love the EC-120. I, I mean, I'm sure you can understand when you have a, a big wide open space and to get to point A to B, you don't want to take the road that takes you at a 90 degree turn all the time to get to a place. So the helicopters actually become my commuter vehicle. I use it to check on my flight schools. I can use it to check on my local businesses because I can just take off from the ranch and I can cut my commute time to probably a quarter of the time it would be if I had to take the car. And I use it in the ranch. I use it to round up my cows because we are a large ranch, but running the cattle by the helicopters is very easy to do and it saves my cowboys work tremendously, especially if we have to do an evacuation for a hurricane. We take the helicopter out to round up the cattle so that we don't need to use the manpower and take two days to do what we can do in a morning. And we also use it to uh, take care of the predator control. I'm sure where you are, you've got a lot of different animals that you have to deal with. And in Texas, we have quite a few that are destructive to the farmland. So we use the helicopter to help with the predator control. And it's just been a a regular piece of equipment in the day-to-day ranch life, as well as a great commuter vehicle. How often do you have the hurricanes roll through there in the Gulf of Mexico? It depends on the year. I'm sure you can understand how that is. But here we get them. We've had them consistently two or three. And they may not hit us, but two or three per year. Although they may not hit us, we have to evacuate because it takes us two and three days to move all of our animals off the coastline. So we have to, we have to move the cattle to higher, higher ground, which involves a lot of maneuvering. And we have to actually take all the horses, round them up, and take them by by truck inland or to where we think the hurricane track may not go. And sometimes it's, it's 
two days of something that just doesn't work because the hurricane goes a completely opposite direction. But we've got to evacuate earlier than most people. Yeah, it's not something you want to mess around with. And again, you know, I don't get to look at the U.S. very often on a map, but uh, there's that thin strip of uh, of land that sort of runs all the way down that um, that coastline where you guys are. I don't know if that's man-made or if that's just natural, but there's that little kind of barrier between uh, a lot of the coast and, and the actual ocean. The barrier islands, actually, we are on a peninsula. Um, the actual ranch is it's sited on three sides by water. So it doesn't matter what direction a, a hurricane is coming, we're going to get it, and it's not going to be good. Fair enough. And the local airfield, so, and you'll have to explain this for overseas listeners too, so you run the, the FBO there and you've got a flight school at the Clune County Airfield. How far is that from the ranch? By helicopter, it is only a 15-minute flight to get to the airport that I manage. And normally by car, it would be just over a 40-minute drive. And then the flight school is located 17 nautical miles from um, the airport that I manage on the other side, and that's at a towered airfield. So it's another short commute. But it's still, they're within the county and, and within close proximity to us. And that's fixed wing and rotary? Yes. Okay, and, and the FBO, what's, can you sort of describe what an FBO is? Oh, I'd be happy to. The FBO in, in the States, that is the general business that's located on the airport that takes care of your fuel, your hangar, any maintenance issues. It's the um, office that you deal with when you land at the airport. And since it's my local airport, taking and making the airport look good for anybody who visits our area was important for me for the county. And so we've, we've run the airport now since um, 2008 and actually cleaned it up and, and made it a great place to visit. The local sort of flying conditions, like is it flat? Like it, I know you're fairly coastal there. So is it fairly flat or the, the hills start fairly close to the coast? What's the local flying uh, like? Actually, it's like flying across the desert for the most part. It is it's flat. We're at sea level for the most part in our county. The highest elevation might be 30 feet. We don't have a whole lot of tall trees because we are located near the, the coastline. Most of our terrain is grassland and salt grass. We have marshy waters, so we've got alligators. We've got good fishing for the flats boats. And uh, it's just, just a nice, consistently flat terrain. Not a whole lot of airspace issues, so you can actually fly for hundreds of miles without having to talk to anybody. So you got some good lower safes then? Yes. <laughs> All right, and you got a lot of stuff going on there at the airfield too. So, and well, this starts leading into the um, the Whirly Girls and the sort of developmental of aviation that you're doing there. So you guys get a lot of kids in, and you've got a um, an aviation program for kids at the airfield. We do. I think as as pilots, we like to carry it forward. It's hard when you talk to a pilot for them not to get excited about what they do. And I'm sure it's the same for you. If, if somebody asks what it's like to fly for a helicopter, I could talk an hour on the subject. And having a kid get excited about it is just that much more rewarding to me. So what we do at our airport is we actually have one day a year where we import all the kids in the county that are sixth graders. So they're about 12 years old. And they're, they're almost you know trying to figure out what they're going to do later on after school. And so we bring them to the airport and we expose them to just 
everything that aviation has to offer, everything from um, weather systems to becoming a mechanic to being a uh, air traffic controller. And then we have every different kind of pilot that we can find. We have the Navy pilots show up. We have the air ambulance pilots show up with their equipment. And we make one full day where they get every kind of exposure to aviation that, that they can get. And it works out. I know there'll be a, a child someday that comes back and says they got their start in aviation because of me. And that's where the payback is. We, we need to keep the numbers in aviation growing. And this is just one little way that we try and do it on a local level. Well, that's huge. And that, that was going to be my next question is, you know, how many years have you been doing it? And have you had that first person who's come as a sixth grader and then come back as a pilot? But it doesn't sound like you've quite got to that stage yet. Actually, we've been doing it now. I think it's our sixth or seventh year. We've done it every, every year since we got the airport up and running. But we've had kids that actually have come back and have signed up for military service because that's the only way that they could pay for an aviation education. We're a very, um, our, our county is, is not a real, um, our income level is on a lower level because we're mostly ranchers and farmers. So for kids, in order to get an aviation career, a lot of them will turn to the military and the government to pay for that education. So I've actually had a few that have gone into the Air Force and have come back and said, you know, this is how I was going to make my dream come true once I figured out after your day at the airport, this is what I wanted to do. Wow, that's, yeah, it must feel really, really good. All right, Diana, so you're doing a lot of um, work there. I know you've done some uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation flights and you're involved in the uh, the Angel flights too, which we might touch on later on. But let's jump into the Whirly Girl side of things. So how do you, well, I don't know, what was your first contact with Whirly Girls organization and how did you get um, you know, in the process of becoming a president? <laughs> Well, it was a, it was a quick climb. Whirly Girls is is an organization of just female pilots that are certified in helicopters, and that is the only thing that you need in order to become a member. We've got we're in 44 countries now. We've got over 1,800 members, and we go back to 1955. It started out as a small group of women, and they would get together and. And we're unique. Female helicopter pilots are very rare, no matter what part of the world you're in. And so this group decided to get together and then figured there must be more, so they they made the organization available to to everybody worldwide. And it's a great network of females that all do the same thing. There's a lot of different pilots around the world, but helicopter pilots and female have to be the smallest percentage of, of specialized skill, but as far as my involvement, my schedule after my competitions with the horses wrapped up and it was coming to an end, I wanted to give back, especially in the rotorcraft industry, and this was my way of doing it, and so I started off as the vice president, I believe three, maybe four years ago, and then moved up to the president position earlier this year. And so I'm, I'm trying to take it forward now and get more involvement within the organization, promote our scholarships, which are the highest number of scholarships that are targeted just at female helicopter pilots. And we've got some great scholarships donated by some of the industries in our country, well, internationally, that um, give, the, give the education back to our members. And, and that's what it's all about. 
And are they cash, um, basically cash prize type scholarships or are they donation in kind? How do the scholarships work? We have two scholarships that are funded by the Whirly Girls themselves. And one is actually an add-on scholarship where if you're a fixed-wing pilot and you would like to become a helicopter pilot, we do have a scholarship that's available for that. And we will fund any school around the world. Is it the dark um, side? That, is it the dark side scholarship? Pardon, I'm sorry. Is it the dark side scholarship? Were you luring, luring them across <laughs> the dark side? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't say that. But but also we have another scholarship uh, that the Willie Girls Fund, and it is for any advancement in the rotorcraft training. If you want to become a flight instructor, IFR certified, whatever a further training you would like to do. We try and help you help you do that. And then we've got specialized training that's available from different manufacturers. Airbus has some scholarships. Um, we've also got some from Skycrane. We've got uh, night vision goggles scholarships. We've got safety as far as ditching training scholarships. It's, it's all very different educational and safety um, training that's available in the form of scholarships that we offer. And how do pilots access that? Is it just through the website and, and they just write a written application or what's the process for uh, applying and for, for uh, selecting those? The very first thing that's uh, number one on the application process is the fact that you must be a Whirly Girl member in order to apply. And then the application may be made online through our website at whirlygirls.org. The only scholarship that you do not need to be a member of our organization is the add-on that I just discussed. But it's it's all online. It's, it's all very easy to do. And then we'll award the scholarships come next uh, Heli Expo, which is the 1st of March of 2015. Okay. And you've got, um, is it the diamond anniversary that's coming up? We do have a diamond day anniversary. It'll be our 60th year. For our organization to celebrate, um, it's a very big year for us. We're we're happy to have it. We've got some great events that we're planning around it. We've got a logo contest that will just be a, a new logo for the Whirly Girls for the year, and then we've got our specialized banquet with the scholarship awards for 2015, and we're going to make it a, quite an evening. And is there local chapters in individual countries, or how, how's the organization run as far as um you know, break down from the, the top organization down into individual countries? We do have membership coordinators that are in different countries. They can all be found within our website. And then once a year we have our gathering because we're so in so many different areas, the gathering at Heli Expo makes the most sense because everybody loves to come and shop for the latest helicopters and get the best education that Heli Expo has to offer. Okay, and I don't know, is there, is there things coming up, new programs you're rolling out, or anything else that you can tell us about the organization? Well, the best things are we're adding to our scholarship base. We're now over $100,000 in scholarships. We have some new scholarships that are coming up for the following year, so we're very excited about it. And we've got the logo contest I just discussed for our 60th anniversary, and those are the most outstanding events that we've got coming up. Okay, so that's the, the Whirly Girls side, and you've got so many different things going on. So why don't we talk about um, <laughs> why don't we talk about the air racing, and we'll, we'll jump around in a few different places here. But uh, you've done 
different types of air racing. So we've got like the overland sort of navigation air racing, and you're also trying to get into the. Is it you're trying to get into the pylon racing? <laughs> well, right now, yes, I am. <laughs> the cross country race is is wonderful and an event that I I treasure every year. But I I have a new jet that I've gotten, and I am a competitor at heart, as you can see. And so a new way to race is is just a natural for me. So I will be entering the jet in the only race of its kind over here in the States. It's it's not like the Red Bull race uh, that is international. It's a race that's been held out in Reno, Nevada every year, and it's, it's around a course and pylons. And so it, it's going to be quite exciting to take a jet around the pylons for the first time. Wow. And this is the, is it the Albatross? Is this the, the 139 trainer? Yes, it is. It's a Czech fighter jet, a training fighter jet, and it's, it's a 1992. They stopped making this particular model, but this one is, is quite fantastic. Is the one that I own was a prototype, so it's got the Western engine on a Czech fuselage, and it, it just outperforms all the regular L-39s. I'm very excited about showing it off. It's not a small airplane. <laughs> well, it depends. It, it, it's, it's not it's a two-seater, but come on, it's a, it's a fighter jet. Yeah, I've seen a picture of you next to it, and it looks, you know, it's, uh, I guess it, everything's relative, but it's, it's not a, a tiny little thing. It's, it's still quite sizable. So that's that's pylon. So that's just going to be around the pylon racing. I just saw recently they've actually just started doing helicopter pylon racing. There was a video for that. Helicopter pylon racing. Yeah, there's uh, the Reno. I'm pretty sure it's Reno, but yeah, there's four. Um, most of them, I think, were actually I think all of them were MD 500s, and um, yeah, they were basically following a lap around, you know, the sort of square pylon racetrack, and uh, and doing that. Oh shoot! Now you, you got me something else. <laughs> you got to check it. that out. <laughs> I do. Yeah, like it's a, yeah, there's a video on YouTube, and and probably within the last six months. So it's only yeah, it's only something new, but uh, yeah, they definitely there's four of them doing a, a lap around, and I guess it's going to be a bit different doing racing in a helicopter, whereas uh, I think they get pretty tight and as far as the uh, the fixed wing go. Uh, obviously, it's only so <laughs> so close you can get with the the, the helicopters in a, a race track. Well, I've got to check that out now. Now you've now you've piqued my interest. Oh, perfect! All right. Well, yeah. Let's know. Here you go with that one. But uh, okay, so let's <laughs> let's talk about the Angel um, flight side. So we've got Angel flight in Australia, and um, I think they would do a, a pretty similar thing. But I imagine they're their own separate organisation. But you were the first helicopter uh, pilot accepted for the for the flights. I was. I was. I was the first one um, in our region. Our region covers about four different. States, it, it's pretty extensive for the United States, for our region. I think we're the biggest one. But when I had applied, I had the Agusta, and I needed a reason to fly and keep my my instrument proficiency up to date. And what better reason than to, to take a patient that needs some help getting to treatment? So I applied, and they actually had turned me down. And um, somebody had the foresight to pull what an Agusta looked like. And once they said, oh, she can not only take one patient, she can take two. And then they decided it was a good time to start rethinking the, having helicopters as part of the Angel Flight Network. And it, it was an audit process for that? Like, do they, you know, is there insurance implications or they take anyone on? Or how does that work? Angel Flight, it, um, in the United States, you have to have a minimum of 250 hours 
and there is a, a pilot application that you have to provide and your aircraft, of course, has to be insured in order to transport the patients, but all the patients that we transport are ambulatory. That's a, one of the criteria. But some of the patients, it's not the fact, and I'm sure you understand Texas is a big state by now, but it's not sometimes the fact that somebody has to drive three days to get to treatment, which a lot of them do. That is an issue that the length of their trip, but it's also the fact that some of our patients are, are babies and they can't be off oxygen as long as a commercial flight would take them, or they haven't built up the immunities to the systems that you would find in the, the germs that would go through a regular commercial airline. So this is a, a better option to them is to have our pilots transport them. And they're all volunteers. They don't get paid. They volunteer their aircraft and their time and all the other things that are associated with it. But it's just a, a great way to make sure that some people can get the treatment that they need. Yeah, I think it's a pretty similar uh, arrangement or deal over here. You still have a, a fairly large air ambulance set up there, though, in Texas, I imagine? Well, we do. Um, it's, we do, but where I live is next to Houston, and we've got the largest cancer treatment center in the world, and that's MD Anderson. And so we we transport patients that are networked through other states, I mean, clear across the country, they might come from as far away as Washington State or even Wisconsin and take different legs with different private pilots all the way down to Houston. So we're kind of the hub for a lot of the treatments people need. Okay, fair enough. And Diana, as far as your flying experience goes in, like, I know, what was the scary, have you had a scariest moment in flying? Well, I think we've all had that. The scariest moment for me would have been probably one of the typical things that happens after somebody gets their instrument rating. And at some point, I think we scare ourselves when we push the limits on what we, what we do for weather flying. And, and what I had done was I did an Augusta trip and I was off to do an angel flight and I lifted off and poked through the blue hole that, you know, that's always seems to be there and tempting you. And when I got through the blue hole, it was solid IFR conditions. And I just was not ready at that point to, to handle all of that like I would after a lot more experience. I just didn't have enough time under my belt. So that was probably the scariest thing I've done is flying to something that was unknown to me. I didn't have the skill level as polished as I do now. And so that was the scariest moment for me flying. I've had failures. I've had hydraulics failures. I've had um, little issues with the engine. But for me, the fear of the unknown was a whole lot more unsettling than having a mechanical issue that I've been trained to kind of deal with. Yeah, and uh, especially yeah, if you haven't done too much of it and you get in that, that, that situation, you just got to try and lean back on the, on the training and, and yeah, and, and work it all out. So, okay, fair enough. And are you still doing, you're still doing flying training? Do you still actually get up and, and do training yourself at the airfield as part of the company? I actually am not a flight instructor. I um, I own the school, but I just do not have the time to dedicate to students that need a trainer available full time. So I'm very good at hiring flight instructors, but you know, other than um, other than having the people provide the instruction for the company, I don't 
I don't get involved until it's time to get them motivated and excited, and I seem to do that pretty well. Yeah, I reckon so. <laughs> things are going on. You're a very key point. When you're hiring staff, um, and maybe a bit of advice then for pilots who are looking for work and, and, and things like that, so what do you look for when you're hiring pilots? The first thing I want in a, a pilot that works for me is I want them excited about it. I don't want it to be just a job. I want it something that when they start talking about flying, their face lights up, they smile, and they talk too long. That, to me, is the most important thing because I want pilots to be infectious. We, we have to get more pilots involved. We have to make our, our pilots safer by additional training. And having somebody that's excited about flying every single day is the most important thing. Excellent. And I've started looking at it for flying training as well. And like, you know, flying training itself is a bit of a commodity. Uh, like you can go to, you know, different schools and you kind of end up with the same license, but it's that extra stuff on top of the, the skills of flying, which is, you know, those attitudes and the excitement and the passion and all those sorts of things. That becomes almost a point of difference then for flying schools and, uh, and being able to sort of pass that on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very important. Schools are it's hard to have a whole lot of good flight school stories because there's so many that just don't make it and they've left students in the lurch for their training or the aircraft aren't, aren't solid, they aren't up to maintenance standards, just so many different things that go into flight training. But it's, it's something that's very valuable to have the best training that you can get. Diana, like I'm always interested in, in sort of what people get up to as far as their extra, uh, you know, extra edu- education and things like that. And one of the best ways is books. So I normally ask guests what their favorite aviation book is. Uh, and you pass one through there. But do you want to talk about that book and, and why you thought that was such a good book? Uh, West with the Night by uh, Beryl Markham was one of the early aviatrixes. And of course, it's a, a female pilot. And so that's going to be something that always piques my attention. But she did, she did some cross-country flying. She did, it, it's hard to believe when I tell students about what people used to use for navigational instruments to fly, they, they just can't believe that they didn't pull out an iPhone with a GPS on it and navigate their way across the country. But it, it takes you back to the old school way of flying and the issues that come up and, and then a female at that time flying what Beryl Markham did, it's just a, a tremendous story, and it's inspirational. It's, um, she was quite a lady, quite a pilot. Her skill set, I admire a lot. But at that time, to do the things that she did, it, it was just unheard of. Yeah, I've got that on the reading list, so I'll have to gradually work my way towards that one. But the, the thing that got me was when I actually looked it up online and looked at the reviews, um, like regardless to the actual to the flying content, the writing style must be incredible as well because there's one there by Ernest Hemingway and basically just giving it rave reviews as far as the the writing craft goes. Um, so yeah, it'd be quite interesting there. Yeah, she's a yeah. I mean, the story is good, but the way that she presents it, it it's just a wonderful story. It's a wonderful book, and I've always enjoyed it. I've read it. I don't know how many times. Diana, so what's next for you? What have you got coming up in the next, um, you know, sort of couple of months in flying-wise as far as, you know, there's always something on the go as far as preparing for a race or or doing something. Uh, But what's the the next few things you've got on your plate to to knock over? Oh, I've got, see, the next few things is I've uh, recently been appointed to a board for 
the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association in the United States, which is the largest group of pilots that there is. And so I'm very excited about working on their board, and what I'm going to specialize on is just the children's program. So I'm very honored to be a part of that set. So I've got, got that coming up, and we're going to start to get ready for next year and our kids' events nationwide. And I'm excited about that meeting. But then I've got um, got the other things going on. I've got to work with the Czech fighter jet and get checked out in that. And so learning a new aircraft and, and flying a different kind of aircraft will be nice. And then early next year, we've got the women around the world. And that's the WOAW event. And that's international competition for women to introduce other girls and women to aviation and every year I do that event in the helicopter. So that will be coming up early next year and it's it's time to start getting ready for that. So I've always got something else that's just another month away. (laughs) So does that world trip, does that get to Australia at all? Actually, um, Australia was number two in the competition last year. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry they lost to me, but no. I'm sure you would be pulling the throttle back for anyone. <laughs> well, I think that um, it was their first, it's the first time Australia competed in, in it, and we were thrilled with the numbers that they were able to introduce to aviation. So I'm looking for, forward to them doing doing even better numbers this year, and it all comes down to to getting other people introduced to the aviation, but also for competition, our competition in a helicopter comes down to weather a lot. So the weather may not be so well in Texas, but it may be wonderful in Australia. <laughs> Fair enough. Look, Tops, let's wrap it up there, Diana. That's, um, you know, you've got a really different background as far as the, the flying goes, but also you're, like, you're just so tapped in. I mean, you know, we haven't, like, you're also running all these businesses outside of all these aviation activities as well. So I don't know if you've got a very good personal assistant or, or how you organize your time, but uh, you're doing, you know, an amazing job as far as promoting flying goes and, and helping out in those different organizations and, the, you know, the kids and, and everything. So uh, yeah, for me, look, thanks for all your efforts there. And, and thank you so much for sharing part of your story on the Rotary Wing show. Before we close, I was just going to say, you know, there's a couple of websites that you want to sort of plug as far as, the flying and the different activities that people can go and have a look at? Best site to pick out for helicopter pilots would be the scholarship for our Whirly Girls, and that's located on whirlygirls.org. And in addition to that, some of the sites that are worth uh, taking a look at is the Women of Aviation Worldwide, which is shortened up to woaw.org, and you can find that online as well. And that's just introducing other women to aviation and helicopters play a major part in the competition every year. But those are, are the two. If, if you're interested in aviation, you're female, that's near and dear to me. You've got a, you've got a racing team, though, yourself and an offsider. I've got another website where you're racing a Cirrus. Is that another website of yours? <laughs> oh, my Lord. We, we actually missed the competition. How did we do that? Um, oh, so is there a different one again? <laughs> no, it's the cross-country air race. Um, my team competes every year, and of course, when when we win, we like to give it back and make other people winners. So the race team is theracingaces.com. That's our website, and we are taking all our winning purse from this year's race and giving out a $5,000 scholarship 
to pass it forward for another female that's interested in aviation that can be any form of education in, education, in aviation. And the scholarship application is available on our website, and that also will be awarded in uh, 2015. And we, we don't care where you're from. You can be any country, but we want to make you a pilot or a better pilot. So that's available off of our race team website. Awesome. So what was the race team website address again? It's theracingaces.com. Awesome. All right, listen, so you can go check those ones out. So, Diana, thank you again. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch up with you soon and we'll get that online. And, and thanks very much for being part of the Rotary Wing Show. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me and I enjoyed talking to you. opened up at the start of the interview with how busy Diana is. So I really want to thank Diana again uh, for her time and sharing her story with us. And with time zone differences, it was actually 6am at her end of the line when we were doing the recording. So a big effort there. We mentioned a bunch of web links in the episode. So I'll include those in the show notes at rotarywingshow.com so that you can track those down. If you're a female aviator or no one that might benefit from accessing a scholarship, then point them over to the Whirly Girls website where they can get details on those. We also mentioned the helicopter pylon racing video. So I found that again, and I've added that to the blog post for this episode. It shows the four MD500 types going hard at it around a racetrack, and the start of the actual race where they go from the hovering start looks pretty cool too. If you've got any questions for me or Diana, or want to comment on the episode, you can do that over at the blog post too, and I'll respond to every comment there. So come say g'day. Something I found for the first time this week is a document called the Helicopter Pilots Model Code of Conduct version 1.0. And I'll just read from the document introduction. So it says the, the Helicopter Pilots Model Code of Conduct, the HMCC, offers recommendations to advance helicopter flight safety, airmanship, and professionalism. The Code of Conduct represents a vision for excellence for helicopter pilots. Its principles complement and underscore legal requirements. The FAA practical test standards and comparable international materials set the standard evaluation for pilot certification. As such, the PTS focused mainly on the flying or the basic flying knowledge and skills. However, standards and regulations by themselves do not provide a framework for how to think and act in situations that may not be covered by procedures, checklists, or operating manuals. In contrast, the HMCC, or the, the Code of Conduct, articulates broader guidance, a set of values to help a pilot interpret and apply standards and regulations and to confront the real-world challenges that could lead to a mishap. So a pretty cool little intro blurb. Now, reading through it, if you've been flying for a while, then look, you're not going to find anything particularly earth-shattering in the document, but it really captures and brings together you know, all those things that go into codifying what airmanship looks like in practice. If you've ever had to try and describe the actions or behaviours that lead to good airmanship, so previous guest John Ecott talked about this a little bit in the episode, where he was talking about the difference between being a pilot and pushing and pulling on on sticks and levers, and actually being an aviator. So I'm sure you can Google it, but again, I'll link to it in the show notes. And the name of that was the Helicopter Pilots Model Code of Conduct. And again, I mean, you know, doing this for a while, that's the first time I've come across that, so I thought that was interesting. And if you're a flying school, I reckon this is something that uh, you should have 
on hand to pass out to students when you get to that point in the course where you want to sit down and have a fireside chat about airmanship. Uh, this would be a great little uh, tool to, to have there to do that. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks again to episode sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. If you've got a question about marketing your helicopter company, send it through and I'll have a crack at getting that answered on the show. Several interviews in the pipeline are coming up. So uh, looking at Oz Runways, Spider Tracks, we've got a test pilot talking about height velocity charts and someone, that's Andre, if you're listening, someone I've been trying to nail down for a while to talk about long lining. That'll be coming up. Quick plug, grab your copy of the list of the top 10 helicopter books on the website. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host again, Mick Cullen. Give us a share on social media if you think we're worth it. iTunes reviews are awesome too and greatly appreciated. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. And wishing you guys a very happy flying and safe week. Until next time.